Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we are uh, nearing the end of 1 Corinthians, this, uh, this book that we've been in for some time, looking at what it means for us uh, to be a community shaped by the gospel, to be a community shaped uh, by the love of God seen in the cross of Jesus. And so this morning we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and if you are willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word? Our reading today is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 58. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the glory through through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and is given to us in love. There is a professor at MIT uh, in Boston named Max Tegmark. He's also the co-founder of an organization called the Future of Life Institute, one of the leading thinkers on uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, And he recently wrote a book called Life 3.0. In uh, Dr. Tegmark's understanding, Life 1.0 is the way that he describes humanity and our biological origins. Life 2.0 is humanity as it's developed culture and early technology. And life 3.0 is the merging of the human body with artificial intelligence, with the potential for almost unimaginable power. I'll, uh, I'll read a quote uh, from this book for you. Tegmark writes, Yet despite the most powerful technologies we have today, all life forms we know of remain fundally lim- fundamentally limited by their biological hardware. None can live for a million years, memorize all of Wikipedia, understand all known science, or enjoy spaceflight without a spacecraft. None can transform our largely lifeless cosmos into a diverse biosphere that will flourish for billions or trillions of years, enabling the universe to finally fulfill its potential and to wake up fully. All this requires life to undergo a final upgrade to life 3.0, which can design not only its software, but also its hardware. In other words, life 3.0 is the master of its own destiny, finally fully free from its evolutionary shackles. If this seems like a bad idea to you, uh, you are right, congratulations. Um, If it also seems like a relatively familiar idea, you're also right. Uh, This is largely the story of humanity. A desire to, uh, to ascend and to achieve all uh, that it means to be with God without God. Right? This is fundamentally what Adam and Eve chose in the garden, choosing all of God's knowledge and all of God's power without faithfulness to God. It's fundamentally the same as the, the men and women chose in the early chapters of Genesis to try to build the Tower of Babel, trying to attain to heavenly heights to rival God himself. Some have said that life in our post-Christian, secular, uh, Western world is marked by a desire for the kingdom of God without the king, right? We've lived our lives under the influence of Christianity for so long that our, that our desires are shaped by the kingdom. We long for justice. We long for equality. We long for wholeness and flourishing. We long even for uh, the protection and longevity of human life. But we've long since stopped pursuing that uh, through the king, through God himself, and have started pursuing the trappings of life in the kingdom apart uh, from faith and apart from reference to God. And yet Paul tells us uh, in our passage here in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You know, read in isolation, uh, those may be some of the more depressing verses in the Bible, uh, because all of us are flesh and blood, right? All of us are born into this life with the limits uh, that it brings with it. We're morally weak and limited sinners. We're physically weak and limited, dying. In such a life, Paul tells us, 
Uh, he describes it in these verses over and over again as a life that is perishable. Uh, might better uh, be translated as perishing, right? That life in this world is perishing. Life in this world is a life marked by a slow diminishment, going from strength towards weakness, from health towards failing and illness. Scientists tell us uh, that human beings begin dying right in their 30s. That's a fun thought. Uh, that, uh, that up until about 30, you're growing, you're, you're, your hormones are being produced, you're thriving, you're getting stronger and stronger and faster. And then sometime in your 30s, imperceptible at first, you just start slowly dying. Uh, going from the sharpest moments of your mind towards a little bit duller, going from your strongest to a little bit weaker. Don't worry, there's more. We're not going to just end <laughs> with you dying. But life in this world, life in flesh and blood, is marked by perishing, by a type of diminishment. And we were made for more than this. Paul tells us we are made for the kingdom of God. We are made for that life marked by communion and peace with God and with one another. A world flourishing under uh, the reign of God. There's a section in Isaiah 25 uh, that I love that forms the backdrop of this passage. Paul quotes it uh, once, and I think that it forms the expectation that Paul is talking about here. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8, paint this beautiful picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. I'll read it for us. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. In the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Friends, this is a supersized promise of what God is doing in the world. This is a promise of God's saving work that was completely outsized compared to what, Israel, uh, to what Isaiah's first audience would have been expecting. Isaiah's audience reading this in Babylonian captivity, their greatest hopes and their highest expectations were that they would repent, right? They had been carried off into exile because of their own sin and idolatry. That God would renew them, that they would repent, that they would get brought back from exile and put back in their homeland. That is what they expected God to do. And this picture that Isaiah paints includes that. The mountain that's described here is Mount Zion, the mountain on which Israel, Jerusalem, is built. So it includes the return of Israel from their exile. But it's so much more than that. Notice the number of times that it refers to all nations, all peoples. Right? This isn't just God renewing his people. This is God renewing all people. This is God bringing to himself people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, even Babylonian people. Gentiles who are far from God being brought to Mount Zion. There he would prepare a meal for them, a meal being a symbol of communion, a symbol of intimacy. 
right? It's a picture that's reminiscent uh, during the Exodus when God led his people out of Egypt. On Mount Zion, he prepared a meal and ate with Moses and with the leaders of Israel. But here's a meal that's not just limited to Moses and the elders. This is a meal for all people. All people now invited into face-to-face communion with God, breaking bread with him, drinking wine with him, celebrating a feast with him. All people. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The image here is of the one sovereign and almighty God going from person to person to dry their tears. This isn't just God's consolation for Israel. This isn't just him drying their tears, taking away the the tragedy of their exile. This is the drying of all tears from all faces. The comfort of all people. Finally, swallowing up uh, the one enemy that haunts all of humanity and swallowing up death itself forever. You know, I think Isaiah uses this vivid image to show Israel two things. First, their problems are a whole lot deeper than they think they are, right? Their problem isn't just that they happen to be a, a captive people, that they happen to find themselves in exile. And his salvation will also run much deeper than they hope. Right, that he's about more than just a change in their circumstances. He's about more than just a change in their physical location. That their problem is worse than they imagine, and that his salvation runs deeper than they ever could have imagined. Right, and that that realization is necessary for us as well, isn't it? Right, I think that most of us spend most of our time thinking that our problems are fairly uh, cosmetic. That at the core, we're basically good people who mean well, uh, but that we just make bad decisions from time to time, right? That if we could just fix these one or two elements of our personality, that things would be different and we would be better. If we could just overcome these few bad habits, kick these few lingering addictions, that then we would be fine, right? Notice, I, I see this in the way that we apologize to one another. How many times when you hurt somebody, Do you say, you know what, I'm sorry if you took it that way, but believe me, that that was not my intention. Or how often do we say, yeah, I know I did this, but that's not who I am. That's not what's in my heart. Because it's so much easier to say that than to say, you know what, I'm sorry that what's in my heart hurt you. I'm sorry that I am that kind of person who wounds those that I love, who hurt people uh, with my desires and with my selfishness. When we think that our problems are cosmetic, we, we settle for surface-level solutions. We think that we're basically good people who need to learn maybe some new instructions so that we can do a little bit better with our lives. But when we look our true condition uh, dead in the face and recognize that we're not fundamentally good people who need a little bit of help, but we are fundamentally spiritually dead people Uh, who need to be brought back to new life. That we are people stuck in sin and death who need to be ushered into new life. Then we begin to understand what it is that God offers us. We don't need reformation. We need resurrection. We don't need to be cleaned up. Uh, We need to be raised up. We don't need to be made good. We need to be made new. 
And the good news that Paul tells us in this passage is that that is precisely what God has done for us and is doing for the world through Jesus. How? How does God do that? How does God make us new? Well, he tells us in in two of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uh, charts our problem, the depth of this problem, uh, by talking about our three greatest enemies, sin, the law, and death. These are three things that Paul links here, that he links elsewhere in his writings. He spends a good bit of the book of Romans talking to us about this unholy alliance between sin, law, and death that keeps humanity locked in a hopeless state. Sin uh, is where he begins. He tells us in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right, that sin is that common human problem. That common human problem that is sought to find life in and of itself apart from God. Right, sin is that knowledge that you have that you fall short of God's will for your life. Right, even, even if you don't, uh, even if you're here with us and you don't reference God in your life, you're not to a place where you believe you know what God, who God is and what he wants for you. I think at the end of the day, we all fall short, even of our own best intentions for our lives, right? Even if you just measure your life against what you thought your life would be like, measure yourself against who you hope you could be, we recognize that we, we fall short. We fall short of our own best intentions. And then when we look at who God calls us to be, people who order our entire lives around love of God and love of our neighbors, we become aware of what Paul calls here, that we fall short. We fall short of who God created us to be, and we're sinners. The next part of this alliance uh, that forms our problem is a surprising one. He tells us that the, the power of sin is the law. The law refers, of course, to God's commandments uh, in the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments, and then out of that, all of the other commands that God has given his people. And God gives us commands, and it's a good thing. God gives us the law as a gift to show us what a genuine and true and fulfilled human life looks like, what real love looks like. But Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7 that because sin is in our hearts, that the law that was meant to be the path of life actually becomes a source of death. He gets to this in Romans chapter 7. Starting in verse 7, he says, What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. 
What's Paul saying here? He uses the, the example of covetousness, wanting something that's not yours. He says, essentially, if I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to covet, I could go through life feeling like a pretty good person. Right? But when my neighbor Steve shows up with a jet ski on a trailer, and I go, man, I've always wanted a jet ski. Then I've coveted, and the law has told me that that's coveting, and now I know that I'm condemned. Right? To expand the analogy a bit, it's fairly easy to claim that you're a good person if you've never actually tried to be good for very long. Right? I can, I can sit on my couch every day and tell you that I'm in good enough shape to run a marathon. Right? I can, I can say that all I want. But if I went out and tried to run a marathon, I would find out pretty quickly that I am not in good enough shape to run a marathon. Probably on about mile three, I'd realize, ooh, this is about normally when I stop running. And I, it would quickly become apparent that I am not in as good of shape as I thought I was in. And the law works in a similar way if you think you're a good person. And then you go out and say, I'm going to take my goodness and I'm going to try to follow the commands of God. I'm going to try to love my neighbor as myself perfectly. You get into that a few minutes and you start to realize just how selfish you are, just how lustful you are, just how angry you are. And so the law produces, it amplifies, it magnifies sin in our lives. And that this duo of sin and law is what gives death its sting, right? What makes death dreadful, what makes it not just a normal passage of human life, is that each of us lives with a certain fear that we're going to have to face judgment, right? Maybe, uh, maybe you only have vague ideas of what that's like. I think many people face death with this kind of vague dread. Right? I don't know what's out there. I don't know. Nobody's ever come back from death. I don't know, I don't know what God I'm going to be accountable for if there is one. But I'm just going to be hoping that in that day, my good basically outweighs my bad. Right? That I did a little bit more good than I did bad. And whatever God there is looks at that and says, okay, good enough. And there's a sense of anxiety that can't help but dwell uh, with that kind of fear of judgment. And so the way that the victory of Jesus, Paul tells us, takes the stinger out of death, takes the fear out of death, is this, that the gospel tells us that Jesus took all of the judgment of sin on himself, right? That, that, that judgment day, if you place your faith in Christ, judgment day goes from being something off in an unknown future to something that happened for you 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem, where Jesus took the full weight and guilt and shame of human sin, your sin and mine, on himself. Having kept the law perfectly, he died a death to satisfy the justice of God, so that by faith in him, we join our life to his by faith. We have nothing left to fear in death, because our sin has been taken care of, because we're no longer trusting our own keeping of the law to go before God and say, does my good outweigh my bad? We go before a righteous God saying, Jesus paid the penalty for my sin on the cross. He satisfied justice for me. That's how Paul says that we can join our voices with the voices of the saints who in a song that seems to mock death says, death is swallowed up in victory. 
Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? This picture of the resurrection, remember earlier in this chapter, Paul told us that Jesus is reigning until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. And that the last enemy that he defeats is death itself. Well, this is a picture of what happens when Jesus finally defeats death itself. All who are in Christ rise to new life. And they join in this song of victory over death. It's reminiscent of when Moses and the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. Escaping their their Egyptian captors and the sea falls in and Moses leads them in a song. Celebrating God's redemptive work that we all join our voices, celebrating the victory of God in Christ. Because we have been made into the kind of people who can inherit the kingdom of God. Right? He's already told us the bad news, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But then he tells us this incredible, incredible good news. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Paul in the the rest of this chapter uh, that we read today has been using these metaphors to try to explain how we're raised. He started with the question, how then shall the dead be raised? He uses one metaphor that uh, that it's like a seed that falls into the ground and then becomes transformed into a plant, right? You'd never look at a seed and say, well, that's, that's going to become a flower, right? You'd never look at an acorn and say, that's going to become an oak tree. But yet it is the same thing. It's the same organism. There's a continuity between the two. And so Paul says it's like that, that it, you're the same you, but you're transformed and made new, made into a different kind of person altogether. And then he seizes on to tell us more about what that will be like. He tells us it's a mystery, right? We'll never fully be able to comprehend it. But he tells us, plays again on this parallel between Adam, the first man of the creation, and Christ, the first man of the new creation. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, right? Adam made out of the dust, we're made like Adam out of dust, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The man of heaven here is Jesus. It's the resurrected Jesus, the man who lives in heaven now at the right hand of God. Paul tells us if we want to know what our resurrection bodies will be like, we can look at the resurrection body of Jesus. Right? That Jesus was raised from the dead. He was was reborn physical. Right? He had the kind of body that that eventually could be recognized by people who knew him, that could be touched, a body that could eat and could drink. But it was more than physical, right? We have these pictures of Jesus showing up in a room that he wasn't in behind locked doors, uh, appearing one place uh, to one person and then elsewhere to different people. So our resurrection bodies, Paul's telling us, will be our same bodies made new, and they'll be physical bodies. They'll be real bodies on a real earth, but made more than physical through Jesus. You know, I think we can often think of contemplating mysteries like that, like the resurrection body and the new world. We can think of those things as, you know, what good is it, right? What, what, we shouldn't try to preoccupy ourselves too much uh, with the future, 
we should live in the present, right? We're aware of the fact that Christians have been uh, at times labeled uh, as being too heavenly minded to be earth, of any earthly good, right? Too caught up in the clouds and the future as so as to escape the realities of this life. And yet for Paul, that is absolutely not how it worked, right? Look how he finishes this chapter. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Right? He takes to this group, uh, this, this minority of Christians living under, under some persecution in a culture where it was very difficult to be a Christian, taking this vision of their future resurrection, looking back at the resurrection of Christ, and saying, as you live between those two resurrections, be steadfast, persevere, hang on. Because in Christ, in light of these resurrections, you know that all of your work, all of your labor, all of your suffering is never in vain. Right? To be a Christian is to live not just with a different set of beliefs about the world. Right? It's not to live with a certain set of ideas that you believe. It's to live within a history within events that we believe and know to have happened, right? It's not just ideas, it's history, it's events. And it's to find ourselves living in a history where we know something about the way the world is going to go, right? We know based on the first resurrection of Jesus, Paul tells us, that there will be a future resurrection of all who are in Christ. And so Paul says, living within this different history that you know, living within these different facts that you have, your life should be different. Your life should be marked by a different type of investment. You know, if you uh, are familiar at all with, uh, with the stock market, you know that when somebody, even if you're not familiar with it, you might know this, um, when somebody who is in a position of having insider knowledge, say an executive in a company, takes that insider knowledge about something they know is going to happen and invests their money in what they know is going to happen in order to profit on it, that's a crime. It's called insider trading. It's what put, even Martha Stewart went to jail because she did that, right? It's a, it's a breaking of trust. But Christians are called to act with a type of insider trading. In a sense, we're told that we know a future of the whole world. And we are given not only permission, but a command to invest our lives in light of that future reality, knowing that the things that ultimately matter in this life are not what seems to matter in the day-to-day. -day. What ultimately matters for eternity uh, is not the rising and falling fortunes of our life in this world, because we know that Jesus is king. We know that he's risen from the dead, and we know that in him we will rise and that nothing that we spend in this life laboring after his glory and his kingdom will ultimately be lost. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, faced as we are uh, by the ups and downs of our own life and the life of the world, it's so hard to remember uh, the reality of life as you reveal it. Lord, help us to live our lives in light of these two great resurrections. To live our life knowing and under the conviction that you really did rise from the dead on the third day. That you really have triumphed over sin and law and death. And Lord, that in you, uh, we too will rise. That as certain as the rising of the sun tomorrow, 
uh, is our resurrection in you on the last day. Because your promises are sure. Because you've told us that you will see through to completion the redemptive work that you've begun in us. Lord, we experience what it is to know in our bodies and in our hearts this life of perishing, this feeling of weakness and diminishment. But Lord, we pray that by your spirit and in the power of your resurrection, we would know what it is to be coming from death to life, from weakness to strength, from shame to glory. Lord, we pray that you, by your spirit, would work resurrection life in us. Lord, you tell us uh, that the same spirit that brought Jesus from the dead now lives in us. So Holy Spirit, bring us too from the death and sickness of sin to life in the light of your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at Christchurchintown.org.